Okay, we are continuing on looking at the life of Jesus, <clears throat> and we're going to pick up uh, where we left off la- <clears throat> last time, and we are we are going to start reading about about uh, uh, as as we track the life of Jesus. We're going to read about John John the Baptist, and and uh, we can read in Luke chapter three. This is where we pick up on John the Baptist, and in fact, the three synoptic gospels. So so synoptic means Similar, same, same-sided. Uh, the 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 three synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all mention this this passage about John the Baptist when he comes on the scene and starts his preaching. And we'll look in, in Luke chapter three, starting at verse one, but we'll also look in, in a couple of the other gospels as well. Um, so if we look at, at Luke chapter three, verse one. Now, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Okay, so, so Luke picks this up and, and he, start, he marks this by, by tracking it, he says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So remember, Luke is writing from a Greek sort of perspective, writing to the Greeks, and you mark this. This is how you record history. How do you say when an event occurred? Well, they marked it by, by saying what year of a particular person's reign, and boom, he just nails it. Luke is doing this very much as a historian. If you were to look in the accounts of Mark and Matthew, you don't see the same sort of marking it with a specific period in this, in this time. And he didn't just list it uh, uh, with, with the reign of Tiberius uh, Caesar. He, he marked it, he says, uh, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. So Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and we, we know all of these different dates, from 26 to 36 A.D., uh, um, AD. And then Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee. So this is Herod Antipas. Remember, King Herod died uh, when Jesus was, was uh, a baby. You know, somewhere around when Jesus was three or four years old. Herod, uh, uh, Herod the Great, I'm sorry, had died. And his different sons took portions of his kingdom. Uh, Herod, Herod uh, Antipas was the one who was uh, the, in charge of the Galilee. And his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and then and so Philip died in 34 A.D. And then this person Licinius, we know nothing more about him. Uh, 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 there, there's there's no other history about him. And then there's the priesthood. He mentions of the priesthoods of, of Annas and Caiaphas. So Annas was priest from 7 to 14 A.D. and Caiaphas from 18 to 36 A.D. And sometimes in the New Testament. Remember, there was only one high priest, but sometimes they will talk about the high priest Annas, the high priest Caiaphas, and you say, well, how could the two be high priests? Well, one of the reasons is, and we'll look at this later on, is that sometimes the Romans would not like a particular high priest. And remember, the Romans were the overlord for, for all, all, of, all of the kingdom of Israel. They would remove a high priest saying, no, this person can't be your high priest anymore, and someone else would go into that position. But the f- person that was removed was still often recognized by the Jews as high priest, 
even though the Romans didn't let that person serve anymore as high priest. And, and generally, they were not removed for being a good person. They were removed for being a not-so-good person, and that's certainly the case with Annas. Uh, and we'll learn more about Annas and the, and, and the problems that he caused. Uh, so, so this marks it in time. So this is very specific. So when, when people think that the Bible speaks in generalities, it's not doesn't speak in generalities. It speaks with specificity. That, that uh, this is very precise, the time in which is, this is occurring. And now look in Luke chapter 3, ver- verse 3. And he came into all the region around the Jordan and preaching the baptism of repentance unto the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough way smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Okay, so that's, that's, the, that's what we see that, that he was preaching here, and he preached now, it says, that he was preaching a baptism of repentance. So this is what what, uh, um, what John was saying, he came to preach a baptism of repentance. If we were to look in the account of Matthew, the account of Matthew says that he was uh, preaching repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now this is what repent means. Repent means I'm going this way and I turn and go this way. Repentance is not, gee, I'm sorry about that. That is an apology. Repentance means you turn and you go the other way. And this is what he's saying. He says, you have to change your direction. You have to change what you're doing. He, he's preaching a baptism of, of repentance. It says in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, a baptism of repentance unto the remission of sins. And, and, uh, uh, so, and then also what this what's said here is, is that this was the fulfillment of prophecy. And so he quotes from Isaiah... And it's, it's a fulfillment of two prophecies. There's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40, and there's also a prophecy uh, in Malachi. In Malachi, there's a prophecy also of John the Baptist. So there's actually two prophecies being fulfilled. That's in Malachi 3.1. But if we look at these words, look at what's said in verse 4. And it's written, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. When it says, as it is written, it says, look at this. This is now a precise fulfillment of what was written. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about the different ways that the New Testament will quote the Old Testament. This is, a, this is an example of that literal with literal fulfillment, where there's this prophecy with a literal fulfillment. This is what we have here. He says, there's a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. We don't know a precise interpretation of this, but we do know that Jesus was the embodiment of salvation in the flesh. Jesus himself embodied salvation. All flesh was going to see salvation in him. But he says he's going to make the crooked straight, he's going to make all of these things He's going to bring down the mountains. He's going to raise up these valleys, these ravines. He's going to turn the crooked straight. Every road is going to be smooth. You know, one, one could look at this in the sense that when I come to God, when you come to God, when people come to God, everything is equalized. 
Whether you're the president or the plumber, you come to God on your knees. Whether you, who, whoever you are, we come to God in some sort of humility. It is never, well, you know, my position's pretty high here. You know, I'm, I'm pretty good. God, you're getting a good one today. No, everybody comes exactly the same way to God. And this is why in the church it speaks about this, uh, in, in, in the body of Christ it speaks about this, how there's this oneness that occurs, how we are all one in, in Christ. In the book of Galatians it says there is neither male nor female, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. We are all one in Christ. All of us are one in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean functionally we're the same. You know, the president does something different than a plumber, right? So, functionally, we're different. Women bear children, men do not. Right? Functionally, we are different. But we are all the same in Christ when it comes to coming to the point of salvation. Now, our roles may be very different. You know, a pastor's role is different than the custodian's role. But in Christ, there is a oneness how we come. And this is why in the body of Christ you can, have, you can have people with very high positions in the world and people with very low positions in the world and both of them worshipping side by side in the body of Christ. This is what I love about the body of Christ. There is not a particular seat for a particular person or anything. We all worship God together. You go even through the, the pews of, of, of our church, I mean, you will see very distinguished people and people who are less distinguished. People who are just college students, just, you know, working their way through. Everybody worships together. This is who we are. This is what the body of Christ is. There is this oneness that the, the mountains and the hills are just brought down, the ravines are brought up. We are all one before God. This is a beautiful thing. It is not always like this in every religion. It is not always like this in every faith. We don't have a caste system. We don't have highs and lows. We are all one in the body of Christ. And this is why you will find people at very high positions cleaning up, you know, moving chairs. They don't do that in their normal line of work. But in the body of Christ, you do that. In the body of Christ, everybody moves tables. In the body of Christ, everybody works with children. This is the, what is done in the body of Christ. It is the great equalizer. This is the beautiful thing about the body of Christ. And then we, because we all have beheld salvation in this perfect one, Jesus Christ, and we all come to Him on our knees. It's a beautiful thing that we have in our faith. And then he says, and then it says in verse 7. So if we look in verse 7 of Luke chapter 3. So as, as we, we see this teaching. So he began to say to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now remember, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. You say, well, he's in the New Testament. No, his spirit and the way he preaches is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so he comes very much like an Old Testament prophet. He says, he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham of our father as our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And 
he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, What about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. And so, if you look on, in, in, uh, in, in the complementary portion in Mark, in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 6 is the complementary portion. And it says, Even as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, and that, uh, who shall prepare your way. So this is, this is now in Mark chapter 1, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ye ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came, who baptized in the wilderness, and preached the baptism of repentance to the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the country of Judea, and all they that were in Jerusalem. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, and had a leather girdle around his loins, and he, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And so, you see that John was even, even clothed like an Old Testament prophet. It says he was clothed with camel's hair, he had a leather belt and he had and, around his loins, and he, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, locusts were an approved kosher food. They could eat insects if they, if they had six legs and they, they bent the back legs. But, you'd say, you know, how could he live on locusts? Because locusts are, are indeed seasonal in Israel. And, in fact, when I was just there just a month ago, uh, we were sitting out having a picnic, and my son-in-law pointed out, he said, oh, this is the locust tree. Because I said, what is that fruit on the tree? He says, that's the locust tree. That may well have been the locust that is referred to of what, what uh, uh, John the Baptist ate. I said, what do you mean? He says, this is the locust tree. It's called locust in, in Hebrew. And uh, he said that that fruit... He said that fruit, you, you can actually chew on it. He says it's kind of rough, but you can chew on it and it is nutritious. So it may have been that. But we do know he also ate wild honey. That was his food. That would, that's what he ate. So he was very Old Testament in that way. But if you see, it says that in verse 5, that, that uh, all the people in Judea and all they of Jerusalem were baptized by him. So there were people going from Jerusalem to the Jordan. That's a pretty long hike. That's about 20 miles. And it's not 20 miles, you know, just walking a comfortable 20 miles. That is through the Judean desert. And that's no fun of a place to go walking through. That Judean desert's a pretty tough place, the Judean desert. Um, when you're driving down the Judean desert, as you look around, you think, I hope my car doesn't break down or else I'm in big, big trouble. I mean, it's like that type of desert. So, Go, getting there is not easy. These people were coming from Jerusalem. He was going all around Judea. Jerusalem is part of Judea. And he was, he was preaching, and now people were going down to the river Jordan to be baptized by him. Many people were going. But now if we continue on in Mark, let me, let me tell you a little bit of, about this so, so we'll preface it. Well, let, let me first read the passage. Mark 3, verse 7. But when they saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, when he saw them coming to his baptism, he said to them, You offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruit worthy of repentance, and think not to yourselves within, 
saying, We have Abraham to our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now is the axe laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that brings, brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So, uh, it says Pharisees and Sadducees were coming. What's the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees? Sadducees controlled the temple offering. Annas, the high priest, controlled the temple offerings. And because they had control, they would tell people, this is where they were selling in the marketplace, selling there in the temple area. Remember, Jesus sent them out twice from doing this. You would bring an animal for an offering. The animal had to be a perfect animal. But it was a racket going on. The priest would look at your animal and say, well, you know, I found something here. You can't offer that up, but you can buy one here in the temple compound. So you'd have to buy an animal from the temple compound. And by the way, they would give you a little bit for your animal in exchange. Well, then they would turn around and sell that animal to somebody else. It was a racket. And it was known, and in fact, it was, it was often called the Bazaar of Annas. Because he would put his sons in those positions and son-in-laws to run that. It was really corrupt. It was run by the Sadducees. The Sadducees dominated the 70 men on the Sanhedrin. About two-thirds of them were Sadducees. They controlled the temple offering. So what began to rise up were the Pharisees. The Pharisees said it is not all around the offering, but it is around the study of God's Word. So in many cases, in many cases, Jesus is looked upon by Jews even today as a Pharisee, where he was talking about, it was an educated response based upon God's Word. What the Pharisees taught is that you could get closer to God. You didn't just have to go through this offering. You made your offerings, but you didn't have to go through the Sadducean control. You could get close to God by the study of God's Word. They were about, uh, uh, only about a third of the Sanhedrin was represented by Pharisees. So if you look at it by numbers, the Sadducees had more power. Uh, uh, and, and the Pharisees, in a rebellion against this control that the high priest's family had, said you could get close to God through the study of God's Word. So why are the Pharisees and Sadducees coming? Well, whenever there was, and this is what's written in the Mishnah, if there is, so the Mishnah is the oral tradition that started after the, second, the, the Babylonian captivity. So many hundreds of years, 500 years earlier than, than this, oral tradition started to be, put in place, but oral tradition reached back even to Moses. But now the oral tradition said, if there is a messianic movement, you can go and check it out. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees are sent from the Sanhedrin to check out this messianic, this claim of this messianic movement. The first stage of checking it out was there was no questioning. All that they could do was observe. They couldn't say a word. Not a word. And, and, uh, uh, so, so no word could be said, they could only watch, and if they deemed this, they would take the information back to Jerusalem, they would share it with their colleagues. If it was deemed of significance, then a second delegation would go, and there it wasn't just observation, it was questioning, it was interrogating, to see if this messianic movement, because remember, they were looking forward to the Messiah coming. This is how they were going to assess it. And we will see what happens to the herald happens to the king. What happened to John specifically happened exactly the same way to Jesus. The first time you see them coming to Jesus, it says they said not a word. And Jesus finally says, you are saying in your hearts such and such. Because they couldn't say it verbally. They were restricted from that. We see the same thing here. 
And then the second time they come to John the Baptist, then they're going to be questioning him. The second time they come to Jesus, they're going to be questioning him. But this is the questioning phase of John the Baptist, the relevancy of what he is claiming as a messianic movement. And so when John looks at them and says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Mark gives us a clearer word than does Luke. He says that this is directed at this group, the Pharisees and the Sadducees he said this to. This was a direct word to this group that came not out of an interest of repenting and being baptized. They came, you, you know, this is an academic group coming and they're going to assess this thing. And, and, he is the, and they're the ones that he says this to because if you look in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3 verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them... Ye offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruit worthy of repentance, and think not to say within yourselves. Remember, think not to say within yourselves. They weren't even expressing this to each other, that, what's this guy talking about? I mean, we're children of Abraham, we're cool. No, he says, you're saying this within yourself. This man was a prophet. Think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say to you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. You talk about, about feelings of superiority. Jews certainly had feelings of superiority. And remember, I take some liberty in this because I'm Jewish. And so I, so, so I take some liberty in saying these sort of things. To, but I'm telling you, every, every people group has some things that they're proud about, that they think that they have it better because they're of a particular people group. But Jews in that day and even today feel that if you are a descendant of Abraham, offspring of Abraham, you have a direct way to God. And in fact, because it is written that Abraham stands there, this is in their writings, that if someone is going the way of destruction in the afterlife, Abraham is there to redirect you. And this is why John the Baptist says, I'm warning you, don't even say it within yourself that you're okay. Don't think that because you're an offspring of Abraham, I'm telling you, God from these stones can raise up offspring to Abraham. Meaning that it means nothing that you are descended from Abraham. Everybody is going to stand before God. As Billy Graham says, just because you are born in a garage does not make you a car. Just because you're born in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. Every person stands before God on their own. It is a wonderful thing to grow up in a Christian home, but each person stands on their own before God. And this is what he's saying. Don't say this within yourselves. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, that'd be a really hard way when people are coming, I'm really sorry, I'm really repenting. And for the prophet to say, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? No, these weren't people coming with a repentant heart. These weren't people coming to the baptism. And what was John's message? John's message was this. He whom John was to point out. John didn't know who exactly what he, who he, the specific person was yet. But John's message was he was going to point out the Messiah. And he who is baptized in John's baptism, whenever John was to point out the Messiah, they would accept that man as the Messiah. That's the agreement. That was John's baptism. And that's why, that's why much later in, in, in Acts chapter 19... This is like 20 years later in Acts chapter 19. 
Jesus has long been crucified. John the Baptist has long been dead. Uh, Paul ends up in Ephesus, uh, but, but now he's passing through. So John, this is Acts chapter 19, reading from verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is Jesus. You see, John's baptism was an instruction to believe in whom I'm going to tell you is the Messiah. But there were many people, it says, from all over Judea who were coming to John's baptism. John, not everybody saw who John pointed out. You know, many people went home. These people went. Twenty years later, they meet, they meet uh, uh, Paul. And Paul says, into what you, you were you baptized then? He says, we just received the baptism of John. That's all we know. He says, oh, let me tell you something. He says, in verse 5, when he heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And they were about twelve men. So you have about twelve men who had experienced the baptism of John and then never saw Jesus pointed out. But remember, Paul said Jesus was to be pointed out. This is the important thing here. So he goes on, and what does John do? So, let's, so, so then he says, bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. Um, and, and, and then, uh, let's turn back to Luke. So if you turn back to Luke chapter 3, Luke tells us a little more now. These different groups of people saying, were saying to him, what should we do? And he says, bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. And you may say, what, what is this bringing forth fruit? I thought we're not saved based on works. We are not saved based on works. So it tells us, it, it, we're clearly told in the book of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that it's not by works that you are saved, lest any man should boast. So works don't save us, but works very much have a part within repentance, meaning that I'm going this way, when I turn around, I'm not going this way anymore, I'm going this way, but what happens is there has to be works that are coming out of our lives that are in keeping with that repentance. Meaning that if I'm not going this way of destruction, I can't just say I'm going the other way. Going the other way, part of that is doing good works. We are told to do good works in that way. And so he starts speaking with these different groups. So look at the different groups that were coming to him. So he, he says in... in uh, um, so, he, so he says to the multitudes, here's what you should do. In verse 11, he who has two coats, let him uh, impart to him that has none, and he that has food, do likewise. In other words, our tendency is to hoard. People have a hoarding tendency. This is mine. This is mine. And what he's saying is you've got to learn to be gracious with what you've got. And I have seen with my own life, I have seen that those who are cheapest are those who have the most pitiful lives. And those who are generous with what they have, those who share with what they, what they have, are much, much happier. Much happier. You know, we always, always gave, in our home, Shireen was always giving away food. We got married, uh, I was in my second year of graduate school, she immediately started giving things away. When we 
came to our home. We had just gotten married. We drove out to, to Purdue. I had been there for one year. We drove out to Purdue. We see this couple in front of our home who, who I knew from the church. We walk inside and things are being given to them from our belongings to help to furnish their apartment. The next week, she meets a Pakistani woman, a Muslim Pakistani woman. And this Pakistani woman was newly married, had nothing in her home. So what she did, she came into our home, she took from our wedding gifts, she took blenders and mixers and all of this stuff and towels and brand new, still in boxes, and brings it over to this Pakistani home. And she said, here, I need you to help me. I said, help you do what? She said, we're carrying these over to this lady's house. Oh, okay. And we're giving away our wedding gifts. This is what Shireen did. And she lacks nothing. God provides. People who do this, people who are like this, receive much more. She could well have claimed, this is, honey, you know, this is my wedding gifts. You know, this only happens once in life. But no, to her, she was going to share this with those who had none. We had towels. I was never without a towel in graduate school. I was never without food in graduate school. We had plenty. So she knew and she was sharing what we had. This is what he tells them to do. He says, you want to you show forth your repentance? You want to show forth... Uh, uh, your religiosity, here's how you do it. You start sharing what you have. There's a tendency for people to be hoarders. Repentance means you do differently now. You've come to Jesus, you've repented, you do differently now. More is expected of you. To whom much is given, much is expected. You're all big kids now. You don't hoard. You start sharing what you have. You say, well, I really don't have much. Well, you have plenty. You share what you have. You share your expertise. You know how to fix somebody's computer? Fix their computer. You know how to teach physics? Teach them physics. You know how to teach math? You teach them math. And this is not just for the making of money. This is to help out other people out. There is a place to tutor and to make money and to fix computers for money. There's another place in the body of Christ where you just help people out once in a while. This is what you do. This is what the body of Christ is about. So then he goes on. He says... <clears throat> Uh, there were also tax gatherers came to be baptized. And remember, tax gatherers were the lowest and the worst. We, we see lots of these in, uh, happenings in the parable. The lowest and the worst, worst were the tax gatherers. Because the tax gatherers were Jews that were hired by the Roman government to collect taxes. But if Mr. Cohen owned 10 shekels, then the tax collector would say, you own 20, you owe 20. He would keep 10 for himself and give 10 to Rome. This is what tax gatherers did. They were all very wealthy. And so he specifically meets with these tax gatherers. It's, it, it's uh, convenient that Matthew, who had been a tax gatherer, doesn't pick on the tax gatherers. But, but Luke points them out. And, and uh, you'll see later on that Luke doesn't pick on the doctors because Luke is a physician, but the other gospel writers do. Um, so you, you see some of the humanity in this. But, but So to the tax gatherers, he says this. He says, uh, uh, you say to them, he, he says, um, there were many of the publicans came to be baptized and they said, Master, what must we do? And he said to them, extort no more than what is appointed to you. Now what Rome would do, they said, if, if Mr. Cohen owes 10 shekels, you can ask for 11, keep one. But he would ask for 20 and keep 10. So he said, he's saying, don't ask for any more than you're allowed to do. 
you're going to have to pay your income tax rightly. And I take great pains in paying my income tax to make sure that I'm not ripping off the government. And people say, oh, everybody cheats on their income tax. I'll tell you, I don't. I don't. Because I don't want God to come against me. The government would never know it. But God sees everything that I do. And so, now I've got an accountant and I tell her, if there's any question, any question, err on the side of just giving it to the government. I don't want God coming after me. I want to be right with God. You do this right and God will bless you so much more in many other ways. I am much richer in many ways, in all ways, than many people that I knew. But I don't want to rip off the government. God takes care of me just fine. So he says, this is what you do. He says, you're not to do what normally you would do. Then, uh, in verse 14, and soldiers were asking him, and we, what must we do? And he said to them, do violence to no man, neither exact anything wrongfully, and be content with your wages. Now these were not Roman soldiers. These were Jewish mercenaries. These were Jews that were hired by the Roman government, and they would serve. And as a soldier, you could exact a lot out of people. You could have women that you wanted to have. You could extort money. And he says, don't do this. You don't do beyond what your job tells you to do. This is what he's saying. So, what, what, what happens in this whole idea of repentance is he says, we've got to change. We have got to be different. And we've got to start doing good things. Doing good things. Doing good acts. This is what we do. This is part and parcel with repentance. So, for example, if you look, if you look in, in Daniel, there's this portion in Daniel. Daniel w- was speaking to this King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. And Nebuchadnezzar, he was a really bad guy. I mean, he could, he could just have a bad day. He could just have a bad day and, and um, uh, you know, he'd kill a thousand people just for, you know, a bad hair day. I mean, these, these were rough folks. And so God is going to come and he, this man has a dream. Daniel interprets the dream and says, you know, God's going to destroy your kingdom. Absolutely destroy you. So what does Daniel recommend? Daniel served, in, served the king, and Daniel kind of liked the king, even though knowing he was a crumb, didn't hate the guy, and so Daniel gives him some advice. In verse 27, he says, Therefore, O king, may my advice to be... This is Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness, and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. So he says, you break away now from your sins. Not by just saying, well, Lord, I'm sorry. He says, you break away from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. When we do good things for others, this shows forth the repentant attitude in our hearts. Roger was just talking about this new mercy house that they have. This new mercy house where they're going to be ministering to folks at MD Anderson. I mean, you can serve there. I mean, you go once a month and clean. You mean clean the bathrooms? Yeah, I mean clean the bathrooms. This is good for everyone to learn how to clean the bathrooms of others. To clean others' bathrooms. This is good to learn. 
You go there and you serve there. It can't take too much out of you to serve there once a month. I mean, how much can it take out of you? A few hours? Is your time worth, oh, that much? You're so special that, you know, two hours of your time every month, that's a lot. Do they realize what they're getting? I'm educated, you know. Come on now. Remember, everything that is high is going to be brought low. Because by doing good, we show forth our repentance. We have many avenues to serve in the body of Christ. And if you're so busy and think so much of yourself that you don't have to serve, that's for other people who have more time than you. Yeah, like those mothers that have four children. Yeah, like them. That's for them. God has service for us in the body of Christ. There are righteous acts that we do that are expected of us. No one forces this upon you. But it is time that we grow up and we learn to serve in the body of Christ. This is what it is. You, we show forth our repentance through righteous, righteous acts. And let me tell you something. There is nothing that we do that goes unseen by God. Whether it be good or whether it be bad. To devote a couple hours of your time every month to clean something. To clean the mercy house for those who are coming here and may not even thank you, may not even see you. There will be a blessing. You know, I, I, was, two weeks ago I was speaking in California and they have something called the Mission House where they put their speakers in there. It's a beautiful house. And I went in there, I mean, they had towels and beds and everything. And I knew that that Mercy House was cleaned by people in the church. So, you know, after I slept there, this wasn't like a hotel. And I stripped the bed and I left everything folded there and I left a note. Thank you for cleaning the towels after me. Thank you for cleaning the bathroom after my being there. You know, because I wanted to acknowledge them. That I know somebody's going to be coming after me and this is a service in the body of Christ, in the church. This is something that they do. Because, and if I see it, God sees it, and God is the one who really rewards. He says, you do righteous acts. You do something that's atypical of, your, uh, of people. You, you share if you, what you have extra of. If, if, you're, if you're a tax gatherer, this is what you don't do. You don't do what normal tax gatherers do. This is what he calls us to. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the words of John the Baptist, which call us in repentance to do differently, to act differently, to become less selfish, that he calls us to do something different with our lives. Father, I thank you for this truth. I thank you, Lord, for the truth of the word of God. Father, I pray for these young people that you would get a hold of their hearts, that they would learn to serve you in the body of Christ, that they would learn to do that which is good, that which is right, righteous acts that are coupled with repentance. As John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. Father, that they would be bringing forth fruit in their lives in keeping with their repentance, that they would learn to be generous and gracious taking that which they have expertise in and sharing it with the body of Christ. Father, that they would give of themselves, if they can, whatever they have, to yield it up to the body of Christ. Father, I pray that they, then they would see your hand of joy poured out. And Father, I commit them to you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.